Good morning. As we approach the scriptures, would you pray with me? Holy Father, open our eyes, we pray, that by your Holy Spirit we might see and hear wonderful things from your word. Humble us as we come to it, that we might come honestly and admit our faults, that we would trust in your deep love, your grace and mercy to cover us in Christ Jesus, and that we would delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text today comes from the book of Job. And Job is unusual among the books of the Old Testament. Job is not an Israelite. Uh, The events in this book, we believe, happened long ago during the time of the patriarchs. So Job was probably a contemporary with Abraham. And it's a long book, 42 chapters. But the storyline is actually quite short. The first and the last chapters cover the events of the book, and the middle section, the larger part of the book, is devoted to a prolonged and detailed conversation between Job and his friends with regard to the reasons for his suffering. You see, Job had it all. He was, as the book tells us, the greatest of the men of the East. Wealth, fame, status, position, he was well regarded. He had a wonderful, large family, ten children. And in an instant, he lost everything. And here in chapter 19, we encounter Job in the midst of his suffering, where his heart is crying out, why is this happening? And where can I find comfort? Please follow along as I read aloud, starting in verse 1. Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Behold, I cry out violence but am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped me from my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone. And my hope he has pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger, and I have become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife, and I'm a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I have loved have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin 
and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. After my skin has thus been destroyed, yet without my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. If you say, how will we pursue him? And the root of the matter is found in him. Be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. The word of our Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. I want to begin a little differently today. I'm going to read you a quote. As I was thinking of how to phrase this, I couldn't come up with anything better than these words by Laura Story. She writes, Have you ever felt bewildered, disappointed, or angry that you didn't get what you thought you deserved? Looking around, you see others have gotten what you wanted, and you don't understand why you can't get it too. Someone else received your cure, your fix, your apology, the life you wanted, or the baby you prayed for. What you had hoped for, what you earned, what you thought would be mended, what you were waiting on is now gone. That one thing that was almost in your hands that you rearranged your schedule for, that you stood in line to receive, and you made an appointment to get, can no longer take place. Though someone else may have been involved, it still feels as if God has turned his back on you. Do you ever feel that way? As though God, in your suffering, has turned his back on you. Have you ever felt that bewilderment, disappointment, or anger? That you didn't get what you thought you deserved, or perhaps you received what you thought you didn't deserve? Pain and suffering that seem to come out of nowhere and take your breath away. In the words of C.S. Lewis, anxiety that grows like fire or loneliness that spreads out like a desert. The heartbreaking routine of monotonous misery or the dull aches that blacken our whole landscape. Sudden nauseating pains that knock out your heart at one blow. Or pains that already seem intolerable and then suddenly increase. In this world where we experience pain and suffering, we struggle with the justice of a sovereign God. And our hearts cry out, why is this happening to me? Where can I find relief? Job knew the pain of deep suffering. He knew what it was to suffer like this, yet through it all he remained steadfast in his faith in God. And he did this by clinging to what he knew to be true, 
So this morning, I would like to examine this passage closely with you because it reveals to us three false expectations that rob us of our true hope in Christ. These false expectations are really half-truths. They're insidious and they're deceptive. They like to masquerade behind religion. But they're truly lies that Satan uses to disappoint us and to rob us of our true hope in Christ. So what sort of false expectations do we find here? Look with me at the first three verses. Then Job answered, this is he answered his friends and said, How long will you torment me? You see, his friends had come with the stated purpose of comforting him in his suffering. And for the first seven days, they'd done a marvelous job of keeping their mouths shut. And they sat with him day and night and said nothing. And they wept with him and mourned with him. And then when Job couldn't take it anymore and he began to lament his state, his friends started to pile on one by one to explain to him for his own good that he was going through this because of some awful and evil deed he must have done. Instead of comforting him, they were now tormenting him, which is why he says in the previous chapter, in 16.2, he says that they're miserable comforters. So we go on, verse 3, knowing these words are tearing him apart, and he says, these ten times, this is very many, very often, you have cast reproach upon me. And are you not ashamed to wrong me? And so here's Job's case, that they, they are wronging him by claiming that he's done this evil act, when in fact he's actually innocent. And here's where we run into our first false expectation. We see it in Job's friends, the belief that people generally get what they deserve. People generally get what they deserve. That good things happen to good people, and bad things happen to bad people. C.S. Lewis calls this the universal feeling that bad men ought to suffer. It appeals, if we're honest, to our sense of fairness, to the idea that at least with respect to the cause and effect of our actions and their consequences, that we should reap what we sow, that what goes around comes around, to the idea of retribution. And even as Christians who should know better, we can find this false expectation sliding in and infecting our thoughts. We can hear it in the way we classify things that happen to us as blessings or trials. We can hear it in the language that we use to pray. If we're honest, I think that had we been there with Job, with his friends, that we too might have been tempted to suggest to Job that maybe all was not right, to gently remind him of the teaching of Scripture that that no one does good, no one seeks God, that all have sinned and fallen short of his glory. The idea of, of original sin, that total depravity that in, infects and infests all parts of our being. Bildad did the same thing in uh, chapter 25, just after our passage. He, uh, he says, how then can a man be in the right before God? This is verse 4. How can he who is born of woman be pure? 
So he asks that question. You see, we might be tempted to think that way, except for the fact that God tells us how he regards Job at the beginning of this book. If you'll keep your finger there in chapter 19 and turn with me back to the very first chapter. I want to look at verse 8. Chapter 1, verse 8. God is in heaven, surrounded by his court, and Satan comes before him after walking to and fro in the earth. And this is what the Lord says to Satan. Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And so Satan goes on to say, well, Job's only that way because you protect him. If if you took away his belongings and the things he clings to, his family, then he'd curse you to his face. And so God gives him permission to do just that. And in a moment, messengers come to Job, one after the other, to tell him, These horrible things. The roof has fallen in and crushed his sons and daughters. All of his camels and his sheep and his oxen have been slaughtered. He's lost everything. And yet, he doesn't turn. And again in chapter 2, verse 3, the Lord describes him. He says, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. And Job's reputation continues so that the prophet Ezekiel numbers him among those who are righteous with Noah and Daniel. That James in the New Testament points to him as an example of steadfastness in the faith. So the expectation that people generally get what they deserve, that people get what they deserve, is a false expectation. What is true? What's true is that in this life, people don't always get what they deserve, and sometimes they seem to experience undeserved suffering. Back in chapter 19, would you look with me at verse 4? Job says to his friends, And even if it be true that I have erred, My error remains with myself. Probably the best way to read this is the idea that even if, hypothetically, I agree with you that I have committed some error, then this is between me and God. And why are you piling on and making it worse? Verse 5. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me, that is literally put yourselves in the place of God to judge me and make my disgrace an argument against me, working backward from the circumstances of my life to judge that I must have done wrong. Under those conditions, if you put me in that situation, then this is my only response, he says in verse 6. Know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. It's a difficult verse, because if we understand this to mean that Job is accusing God of wrongdoing or saying that God has wronged him, then Job here is sinning. But I think we have three good reasons not to read it that way that are given to us here in the book of Job. And instead to read this as a statement of Job's understanding that God is exercising his sovereign providence in his life, that these things don't happen by accident, but they happen by the hand of God. And the first reason is that back in chapter 1, Job did not accuse God when calamity struck. Instead, his response 
was the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the second time when his own health was threatened and he was covered with boils from head to toe. He'd lost everything and now even his own health. And his wife, his own wife, encourages him to curse God and die. His response is, shall we receive the good from bad and not disaster? And the Bible tells us that he didn't sin even then with his lips. The second reason is that it's consistent with the words that he speaks in chapter 12, verse 9, where Job says, Who among all these, meaning the creation, does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this, meaning this thing that has happened to me? And the third reason is right here in our passage in verse 21. It's, it's the reason he uses as the basis for crying out to his friends for mercy and hoping that they will stop attacking him. He says, have mercy on me, have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. From Job's perspective, his suffering seems undeserved, but he realizes his situation is brought to him. By God. In our modern English, we might say he recognizes the bad things can indeed happen to good people. He goes on in chapter 21 to talk about the fact that good things seem to happen to bad people. He talks about how the wicked prosper in chapter 21, verses 7 through 16. So he says, in this life, you can't reason backwards from someone's circumstances or from your own circumstances to determine if you're in God's will. At the same time, Job does not mean to say that in the end, there is no final judgment between right and wrong, that there is no ultimate justice. In fact, in the last two verses of our passage, He points to an ultimate judgment as a reason that his friends ought to seriously consider whether they should continue criticizing him. He says, If you say how we will pursue him, and the root of the matter is found in him, be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. False expectations always lead to disappointment. They rob us, especially in times of suffering, of the true hope that is ours in Christ. People don't really get what they deserve. And so the Bible teaches us, as Job looks forward to a hope that he cannot even name on how God is going to work this out through his circumstances, we look forward to a hope that we can name, a Redeemer whose name is Christ Jesus, who took upon himself what we deserved on the cross, dying for our sins, And he paid the penalty for it with his life, which was righteous. And then being raised from the dead, he gave us what we did not deserve, his grace, his favor, his righteousness, and eternal life. That is our true hope in Christ that we must cling to in the midst of suffering. Because God doesn't promise us an easy time in this life. We know that Jesus himself said, in this world you will have suffering. But take heart, I have overcome the world. 
And that James writes, Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's not that we're supposed to enjoy our suffering, but we may delight that God uses our suffering to draw us closer to him. Laura's story puts it this way. She writes of a time in her life where she was experiencing suffering. She said, I began to realize that my disappointment with God wasn't something he'd done to me. It was something I'd done to him. I had put conditions on our relationship that were never meant to exist. I had a sense of entitlement. I thought I deserved better, but I don't. That's a hard truth for those of us who experience suffering. And, and I recognize that that's, uh, that's many of us in this room right now. And in preparation for this sermon, I was thinking to myself how even the difficult times I've gone through in my own life, I probably would not characterize as true suffering. I suppose it's all a matter of perspective. So I say these things to you as gently as I can to recognize the reality in which we live. Because if we live with false expectations, then they get in the way of us clinging to our hope that is in Christ. And recognizing this truth here is not only good for our own hearts, but it helps us to be tender and compassionate toward others when we see them in their suffering. Yes, those who are our friends, but especially those who aren't our friends, for whom we find it difficult to have compassion, for whom we'd like to just write off. That's the first false expectation. The second is this, that we have a right to answers. We have a right to answers. Would you look with me at verse 7? Job says, Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. In our suffering, we want answers. For several chapters before this, Job has talked about longing for God to answer him, looking forward to the moment when God would answer him and give him some explanation for why these things are happening. And isn't that the question that underlies our suffering? The one that comes to mind in our hearts in the dark of the night, why? Perhaps you remember the scene from the movie A Few Good Men. And in this movie, uh, there's a Marine Colonel, Colonel Jessup, who has authorized uh, hazing that, that ultimately led to the death of one of his Marines. And there's a Navy lawyer, a young Navy lawyer named uh, Lieutenant Junior Grade Caffey. And he's, he's the prosecutor. He's questioning Colonel Jessup in the courtroom. And at, at the climax of the film, this exchange occurs. Colonel Jessup says, I'll answer the question. You want answers? And Caffey says, I think I'm entitled to them. You want answers? He responds back, I want the truth. Jessup says, you can't handle the truth. 
It's funny, but I think sometimes it's the conversation we like to have with God. We want answers. And God says, you can't handle the answers. God never rebukes Job throughout the entire book for his sins. Job's blamelessness before God is maintained that whole time. He doesn't rebuke him for the expressions of despair he makes even when he wishes to die. Or even for feeling like his suffering is undeserved. But there is one point that God responds to when he finally speaks in chapter 38. And it's this. God chides him for having a lesser view of his greatness than he should have. Starting in chapter 38, God answers Job, but, but he doesn't offer an explanation for Job's suffering. Instead, he uses powerful examples from creation and providence to remind Job that he is God Almighty and Job is not. And Job's response is wonderful. He repents quickly and completely with these words. Please look with me in chapter 42, starting at verse 1. Job answered the Lord and said, I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And then he quotes God's question. He says, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? And he responds, he says, therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. And he quotes the Lord again. He says, Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. And his response is, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent, or literally, I am comforted in dust and ashes. Job doesn't find his comfort in answers to his situation, but in recognizing the all-sufficiency of Almighty God. Edith Schaefer, the wife of uh, the late Francis Schaefer, she puts it this way in her book, Affliction, where she's writing about this very topic. She says, It's hard to put into words the contrast between one stage of knowing about something and the higher stage of really knowing. Job's reaction when he came to know God in a fuller way was to hate himself and want to repent in dust and ashes. Why? Because although he had endured much in a very real and practical way and had not cursed God, he still regretted very thoroughly that he had not trusted more and had not more willingly gone through all the afflictions, trials, and tribulations of those weeks and months the repenting in dust and ashes was a way of saying to God, I wish I had trusted more thoroughly. Forgive me for the imperfection and weakness of my trust. Or as we heard Rick say last week from the Gospel of Mark, I believe, I help my unbelief. When we go past just asking why, and when we find ourselves at the point of demanding answers from the Lord, We've bought into a false expectation that he ought to give us those answers. But what is true? 
What's true is that God doesn't promise us an explanation. As a matter of fact, Deuteronomy 29.29 reminds us that the revealed things are for us, but the secret things belong to the Lord. But what we desperately need to see, especially in times of suffering, is not that God doesn't give us answers, but consider these truths that this story about Job reveals for us in, in the midst of not knowing the answers. We can know that God cares about us individually. Look at the individual care he takes for Job. He cares about us as individuals so much that he as we read in the Gospel of John, sent his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He cares in us, cares for us so much that he promises to never leave us or forsake us, that he gives us his Holy Spirit so that in the midst of our sufferings we can be certain that we are not alone, that God has not abandoned us, that he works to sustain and strengthen us. You see, Our hope in times of suffering doesn't come from having all the answers. Our hope comes in and through Christ. But even more than this, in addition to what God does for us in this moment, this story about Job tells us that it is also a witness to others, that our suffering and the story of our suffering and our vulnerabilities and our weakness is actually used for God's glory to demonstrate his strength and his love. And the very evidence of that is the fact that we have the book of Job and have inherited this as God's word. We read in our reading today that that our sufferings, in our sufferings, we can comfort others with the comfort with which we have been comforted by God. And then there's this whole other third level that's a mystery to us where we realized that what was going on with Job was part of the great cosmic battle between good and evil. And that, that the Lord used this for victory over Satan and his forces. And we recognize we're told the same thing as the church. As we participate in Christ's kingdom, we are promised that the daily struggles of our lives are not for nothing, but they're part of a greater struggle Our struggle is not against the forces of this world, but against the principalities of darkness. And we don't see it. It's a reality that we cannot see, and yet we can trust that it is true, so that in our suffering, when we cry out for answers, we can find our comfort, our true hope in Christ. And that brings us to the third and last false expectation I want to point out today. And this one is perhaps the most dangerous for us. It's the idea that if we're faithful, God will fix it. If we're faithful, God will fix it. So what is it exactly that Job had lost? I won't reread these verses, but from verse 8 all the way to verse 20, Job recounts all the things that he's lost very eloquently talking not only about the material possessions that are gone, but especially about the broken relationships and the abandonment of his friends and relations, even his closest friends, that his own wife literally finds his breath to be offensive, to be a stench to her, can't stand being around him, that his brothers and sisters treat him like he's a bad smell. 
that even young children in the city that don't even know him rise up to mock him. And it's clear from the fact that he starts so many of these verses with he and his that he understands that this came to him by the hand of the Lord. He feels as though God is actively pursuing him as his enemy, that that God considers Job to be an adversary. He's lost whatever glory and position and ability he had to serve his community. In earlier chapters, we read about how Job used his position to care for the poor and the widow and the orphan and to give wise advice. All of that is gone. From Job's perspective, God had taken everything but his life, and he very much expected to lose that too. In fact, at times in this book, even welcomes it. But would you turn with me to chapter 42? Instead of Job's death, at the end of the book, this is what we get, starting in verse 7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take these seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has." So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And listen to this. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house, and they showed him sympathy and comforted him for the disaster that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 female donkeys. He had also seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima and the name of the second Keziah and the name of the third Karen Habu. And in all of the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man full of days. God commends Job for his faith. He gives him back double what he'd lost, restores his family, restores his health. One of the great dangers in knowing how Job's story ends is that it tempts us to expect the same pattern in our own lives. We say to ourselves, just remain faithful and persevere and everything will work out. In fact, we see the same idea expressed by Job's friend Bildad back in chapter 8. Job, if you'll just do what's right, everything is going to work out for you. But this is a false expectation. 
It is truly wonderful that the Lord restored Job. It's a testimony to God's goodness to his family and his friends and for all of God's people, including us, throughout the ages. And in the same way, we should continue to rejoice whenever God answers our prayers for healing and restoration in this life. But we cannot assume that this is what must happen. That if we're faithful, God will fix it. Because this false expectation sets us up for grievous disappointment. And it robs us of the true hope that we must have in Christ. So if that's false, what's true? The truth is that complete healing and restoration may not happen in this life. And I know that as I say that, you could say to any one of these things I've said this morning, yes, yes, we know that, Chris. But I think that many of you, dear brothers and sisters, would also say, even though I know these things are true, I find myself believing these half-truths at times. I find myself clinging to these false expectations. They seem to sneak in at just the wrong moment when my defenses are down and my suffering is great. Let's look back at our passage as we finish out. Starting in verse 23 and 24. Job writes, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved from a rock forever. Job hopes that his, his testimony of his enduring faith and his innocence and even his confession of faith will be preserved permanently for future generations after he has died. Job fully expects to die. And what is it that he believed? He says in verse 25, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. Literally, he will rise up upon the dust. And who is this Redeemer? Job goes on, he says, After my skin has thus been destroyed, yet without my flesh, a better translation, without my flesh I shall see God. And he says, whom I shall see for myself. It's unlikely that Job had a fully fleshed out view of what the resurrection would be, but clearly he believes that somehow, even after death, he's going to come back, and not in a, in a, in a shade or a shadow, but he'll have actual eyes and actually be able to look on God with his own eyes. So he looks forward, even though he knows not how, to a future resurrection. My eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. What did Job believe? What did he expect? Was he looking forward to complete restoration in this life? No. But he believed that after, there would come a time where he would be redeemed, bought back. And like Job, we look forward too. We know our Redeemer by name, Jesus Christ, and we too can say that our Redeemer lives and that we look forward to the day when he will return in glory to judge the living and the dead and we will rise again to see him with bodies using our own eyes. And until that day, the truth is that in this life there will be times where God won't fix it. When he won't take away the suffering Consider his words to the Apostle Paul who asked him to take away his suffering and the Lord responds back in 2 Corinthians saying, 
My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Consider the long list of the saints in Hebrews chapter 11 who experienced such horrible torture. And it doesn't say they were spared from it. It says they under, underwent these experiences for their faith. In his book, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis writes, Pain is God's megaphone. It is his way to raise a dead world, to rouse a dead world, a deaf world. And he suggests that there are three ways that God uses pain and suffering in our lives. The first is to wake us up to recognize that everything is not okay. And the second, he says, is to shatter our illusion that the things that we have actually belong to us and that they're enough for us. He says the third way that God uses pain is that it makes us aware of choice. That to die to ourselves and to live for Christ involves some pain. It isn't what we would naturally want in our fallen state. And it reminds us of what we're doing and the seriousness of it as we submit to God. In our suffering, we have no room for false expectations. We must cling to what is true, that our hope is in Christ alone. We must not doubt God's goodness, his love, and his faithfulness, for God uses suffering, even the cross, to do some of his most beautiful work. Consider these words that were written in the midst of suffering. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. As we strive to live as those who experience suffering and to do so in a way that's honoring to God. May we consider the goal that the Apostle Paul had for his own life when he writes in Philippians 3, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's a tough word that we, through sharing in Christ's sufferings, would become like him in his death, that we might attain the resurrection. But it not only comes with rich blessings, it it comes with the only things worth calling blessings at all. I started with a quote from author and songwriter and singer Laura Story, and I want to close with these words from a song that she wrote called Blessings. And uh, the words for this song came to her at a very difficult time in her life. And in her book, When God Doesn't Fix It, she explains that story of how how, uh, she was blessed with this song. What's helpful about these words as we close together is the way they cause us to consider what we mean when we say blessings. And here's what she says. She says, we pray for blessings. We pray for peace. 
comfort for family, protection while we sleep. We pray for healing, for prosperity, and we pray for your mighty hand to ease our suffering. And all the while, you hear each spoken need. Yet love is way too much to give us lesser things. Because what if your blessings come through raindrops? And what if your healing comes through tears? And what if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know that you're near? What if the trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? Let us pray. Father, by your grace, would you give us wisdom to trust you even and especially in the midst of our sufferings? Lord, would you cause us to realize your great and personal love for each of us, that it would be a deep and abiding comfort to us when everything isn't right in our lives. Would you help us to find joy in the fact that you make the things of this earth less appealing so that we might desire you most of all? And especially in those moments where we cannot speak and our pain is too great for us and it can't even seem to want to read your scriptures or find the words to pray to you. Would you use us as a church to comfort each other with the comfort with which you've comforted us? And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please rise and receive the benediction? May you who find your true hope in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, know that the God of all grace, who has called you to eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever.